Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And John, we might have a new champion in the category of world's biggest gambler, Bill Gates. The Microsoft co-founder, who is separating from his wife, Melinda, reportedly did not make her sign a prenup when they got married in 1994. Gates is worth an estimated $146 billion. Uh, John, is Bill Gates the world's biggest losing gambler? Or is this a situation where he's so many billions beyond feeling any sort of financial hit that such labels don't apply? Yeah, I mean, Eric, I'm, I'm not sure how much money you need before the next clump of it becomes what they call FU money, as right. in that guy's making FU money. But it's not less than 146 billion. <laughs> it's less than it's less than one billion. I'm sure of it. So, mm-hmm. and plus, and this is important. They already had the common sense to be donating the majority of their wealth to charity anyway. And True. I doubt Bill was running that show by himself. Uh, uh, for those of us who have been married, um, so you know, okay, maybe harp seals come out ahead, and penguin stock slides a little bit, or vice versa, depending on which aquatic creatures Bill prefers compared to Melinda. But you know, they'll also get funding for their habitats or meal plans or whatever, and it's just a matter of which ones get the fancier habitat upgrade. So I don't see him as a big loser here. Yeah, I, you talked about that that point at, at which you reach fu money. Uh, so I looked it up. He wasn't worth 146 billion in '94 when he got married, but he was worth something in the neighborhood of nine billion. So at least nine no, times no. The, the FU money range. So yeah, at that point, you're safe to lose half and still have too much money to ever spend it all. So I, I'm with you. I don't consider this a lost gamble here. I consider this a simple cost benefit analysis on his part back in 94, where the <laughs> downside of asking for a prenup wasn't worth any dollar figure to him. I was trying to think about like a, a good gambling analogy, um, something like he and 10 friends played credit card roulette at the end of an expensive meal, but he was playing with the corporate credit card. Maybe, maybe that's, I, I don't know. Not quite the right analogy, but bottom line, I, I am not 
declaring Bill Gates the world's biggest gambler. And that title is still up for grabs if you want it, John. Yeah, and there probably are enough younger people who have not seen the movie War of the Roses, but uh, I rather doubt that uh, this couple uh, is doing that, throwing you know <laughs> pots and pans at each other, and I, I don't, and you know, making all kinds of evil you know uh, schemes to uh, trick the other one. I don't. They don't really seem to have the uh, energy for that. So I think this is probably reasonably amicable, and just uh, move on their separate ways. Yeah, and, I, and I'll date myself right along with you and say Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner were much better exactly. together in Romancing the Stone than in War of the Roses. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and any listeners under the age of 30 have no idea what any of these people or Well, they probably heard of Michael Douglas. Kathleen Turner, maybe not, and definitely neither of those movies. So maybe we should move along. Sure. Thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 141 of Gamble On. Yes, that's right. John and I have been doing this together for more than 140 weeks, and there's no divorce in sight and no prenup. Uh, if you missed any of our previous 140 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Yeah, and coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by the Action Network Chief Content Officer, Chad Millman. You might have heard a little news regarding the Action Network this week. We'll actually be breaking down that news in just a moment. And then Chad will join us to talk about the news from his perspective, as well as sharing his reflections on his days at ESPN and his hopes for the Chicago Bears and the new rookie quarterback. But first, it's been a partly navel-gazing busy week in the world of gambling, including the big deal I just alluded to. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. This week's first news item comes with a giant full disclosure clause, as we at U.S. Bets are part of the news, or at least directly attached to it. This story is simply too major not to talk about, despite the obvious conflict of interest. So here goes. Our parent company, Denmark-based Better Collective, announced on Monday the acquisition of the sports betting media site, The Action Network, which, like U.S. Bets, produces articles and podcasts and makes affiliate revenue, and unlike U.S. Bets, also has a bet tracking app. The likes of DraftKings and FanDuel were also bidding to buy The Action Network, but it was Better Collective that got it done for $240 million dollars. No, this does not mean John and I will immediately commence engaging in Darren Ravel-like stunts if our bets lose. Uh, <laughs> in fact, editorially, what we're doing will remain entirely separate from what they're doing. The Action Network reportedly produced revenue of $15 million in 2020 and is expected to approach $40 million this year. There's some serious money in this space we work in, and gambling media acquisitions are something of a trend lately. Uh, as we discussed recently, DraftKings bought VEASAN for about $100 million, and they also paid a reported $50 million for Dan Lebitard's podcast. And on a somewhat related note, uh, the same day the Better Collective Action Network deal was announced, a competitor of ours, Katana Media, paid almost $40 million for the website lineups.com. Needless to say, it's been an unusual and busy week here at U.S. Bets. John, what was your reaction when you heard the news, both as a better collective employee and as a guy who covers the industry? And do you see any bigger picture implications in terms of the current and future state of the sports gambling media in the U.S.? Uh, let's see. My reaction was, I guess I would say, amusement, uh, only partly because I already know our podcast guests and I've known Darren for at least 15 years as fellows who, for the most part, each were covering sports business issues more so than gambling for a long stretch. Uh, I'll break it down for you this way. So I work for the same newspaper, the Bergen Record, for almost 35 years. Not only that, but this is one of the last family owned newspapers. So I know the old man who replaces old man and so on. And the son of the latest old man who had taken over the business and the daughter who was the paper's chief counsel. 
And then Gannett buys the paper in 2016. I was gone by 2017. Came to U.S. Bets in 2018. Better Collective from Copenhagen, Denmark. Copenhagen? Copenhagen. I should learn that. Much <laughs> I think Hagen, us. but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll roll with you. Well, they're definitely from Denmark. Uh, they bought all of our sites in 2019, and now we're buying a big company ourselves for hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I'm not in Kansas anymore, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is that I came to U.S. Bets on the premise and promise that I just keep doing what I'm doing, which is reporting on the expansion of legal regulated gambling in that United States was already doing that. Uh, that didn't change even 1% when Better Collective came in, and I don't think it will now either. So I think media coverage of gaming is going to be just fine. Yeah. Um, so one thing I'll note is that this deal speaks very clearly to the feeling in Europe that the sports betting and online gambling markets there don't have exponential growth left in them. Uh, they're still growing, but not exploding. America is the land to conquer. This is where these markets are a rocket ship pointing straight up and there's every expectation they will be for many years to come. Um, it's interesting from Action's perspective that they sold to Better Collective and not to a, a DraftKings or a FanDuel. Uh, as Better Collective CEO Mark Peterson told our colleague Brett Smiley for Sports Handle, he believes they valued their independence to cover all sports books equally and serve as an affiliate to all sports books, of course. Um, we wondered recently about whether VEASAN was going to continue covering all books or just follow along with whatever bets and odds DraftKings offers. You know, no such questions for the Action Network after this deal. Um, and in that article on Sports Handle, Smiley drills down a bit on criticism of affiliates and where it's warranted and where it isn't. It's a good read. And I think a lot of people who don't understand the affiliate business are learning a few new things this week. There are certainly some affiliate sites out there that are pure shills for the sports books. Here at US Bets, we're willing to print criticism of an online sports book, and we talk a lot about responsible gambling. We're not perfect, but I think we try to be even handed. Uh, Action Network CEO Patrick Keene had a simple but important quote in the article Sports betting is about entertainment. That's the right attitude to have. Yeah, and I think uh, I'm not much of a businessman, but I've kind of come to learn a little bit about it, which is, uh, you know, even working for a newspaper where there's a total separation of church and state you know, mm -hmm. business side versus the journalistic side. Uh, clearly, it was a business. It was making money. And especially if you look at like a newspaper website. Right. So um, AsburyParkPress.com and the Jersey Shore app.com so that's um owned by Gannett now so if you like the jersey shore you might want to rent a shore house you want to visit a nice restaurant you're you know gonna gonna go there for whatever reason you go to that site and when you go to that site um you're gonna see advertising for shore houses guess what and things like that um, because it makes sense the customer that wants to read about news about the jersey shore wants to see that kind of advertising and so uh, newspaper sites are uh, geographic whereas in this case it's more uh content specific so the online casino and sports betting companies are looking for not only customers who would like to gamble or might think about gambling, but also want to gamble legally. I mean, God knows anybody can gamble illegally right now, and that doesn't really do these companies any good. So once people go to our websites and read news about what's happening in Illinois or Colorado or wherever around the country, Florida's got some stuff going on. Um, then while they're there, they're going to see, oh, I got an opportunity, you know, in, in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Iowa or wherever um, I can sign up and get a, you know, free whatever incentive. So it, it's, it's really, to me, no different than what uh, traditional newspapers are doing on websites now. And that's why, as I say, people can't understand that how little my job changed going from an old fashioned, old school <laughs> dead tree newspaper to this newfangled sort of a thing. I'm still writing news content and with news content content comes advertising. 
big surprise. So um, I didn't even understand this that well so much. And, you know, we're talking about transparency and it's one of those cliche words, but um, there is something to it beneath the cliche style of it, which is uh, just explaining to the customer if they didn't and to the listener, if they didn't understand the business, that's how the business works. Yeah. And, and another thing to just explain to the listener is that uh, you're a fan of Gamble On, you're a fan of the, the articles we write, anything like that. I don't think anything really much is going to change for us other than we are now pretty well free to intermingle with some people who not long ago were our competitors, as mm-hmm. everyone will hear when Chad Millman joins us shortly. You know, it's good for us to have access to, to Chad and Peter Jennings and, and so on. Uh, and Chad, uh, if you're listening, I'm available to come on your Thursday Thunderdome podcast and dominate your trivia game. Uh, I've, I've been enjoying that, but I, I listen along and I think to myself, I could do better than uh, these guys. So uh, just let me know, Chad, if you need me to win the Thursday Thunderdome anytime soon. And uh, you're, we're not teammates on that, huh? Is that right? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a one-on-one game. But, uh, you know, we could play against each other, potentially. Uh, potentially. I'm not terrible at trivia. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, let's move on to our second news story, which is also something of a jaw-dropper. Uh, during its quarterly earnings conference call on Wednesday, Caesars Entertainment announced that just two weeks after finalizing its purchase of the British bookmaker William Hill, It is doing away with that William Hill brand in the U.S., instead branding its online sportsbook and app as Caesars Sports, with the William Hill name phased out by September or so. In an interesting additional note, Caesars CEO Tom Reed said on that call that Caesars plans to sell the non-U.S. assets of William Hill, focusing purely on the U.S.-facing business. This seems on the surface an odd move to buy up William Hill and then ditch the name, But then again, the brand doesn't mean nearly as much in the U.S. as it does in the U.K., and certainly the Caesars brand is better known on this side of the pond. Interestingly, Reed said he was encouraged by the success of BetMGM. That helped inspire him to go with a highly recognizable brick-and-mortar casino brand. Uh, John, our boss, Adam Small, expressed a fair amount of surprise over this in the company Slack. Were you taken aback as well? Uh, And if online sports betting ultimately consolidates down to four or five winners a few years from now, would you expect Caesar Sports is a favorite to be one of them? Well, I mean, I I think technically it's not going to be a total wipeout for William Hill in the U.S. Uh, It might hang hang in there a little bit longer in a few states, maybe even New Jersey, where the name is at Monmouth Park Sportsbook and a few more at Atlantic City Casinos, too. Uh, But I don't see the brand name getting top billing on any new states, that's for sure. You know, I remember when William Hill CEO Joe Asher reached a deal with the Devils, uh, the New Jersey Devils, but I always wrote it that way. Deal with the Devils. (laughs) Yep. Uh, yeah, to open a lounge at the Prudential Center in Newark about three years ago. And yes, even though New Jersey doesn't allow direct wagering at arenas or stadiums, as, as some uh, states now do. So the workers would simply help befuddled visit- visitors to the lounge. They're looking for tellers or kiosks or, you know, how do I how do I do this? And then they just point to their phones and uh, say, well, download the app and here's how to do it. And, and Joe and I talked at that time about that massive dichotomy where nearly every gambler in Europe knows the brand, but it was at maybe 1% awareness in the U.S. And well, it's never going to catch on now. That's for certain. Right. Uh, lastly, yes, there'll be consolidation. And, and yes, I expect Caesars to be right there. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think, uh, let's say it's 2025, which would be far enough from now for the market to have matured a lot. Not so far from now that the technology has completely changed and humans have been replaced by non-fungible tokens and uh, a bunch of brands that don't currently exist are running the world. In 2025, you have to assume FanDuel, DraftKings and MGM are going strong. And then I do believe that Caesar's brand name, if handled properly, could be in that mix. They, they should have edges in terms of branding over points bet, bet 365. 
I think they're more sustainable than Barstool. Um, I don't want to make any firm predictions, but I do think there's a better chance of a Caesars branded sports book competing for the top spot than a William Hill branded sports book. It, it, William Hill just doesn't mean anything to the average American. Uh, but a, as you've pointed out, uh, John, uh, further consolidation awaits. Eventually, Draft Duel will run the world, uh, and then Draft Duel will merge with the as yet unnamed Caesars MGM blended product, and we'll just have one giant sports book. Oh, boy, I can't wait. <laughs> All right. For our third story this week, let's go to John's backyard, New Jersey where arguably the strangest rule when sports betting was legalized in the state is on the verge of being rolled back, at least partially. In Jersey, you can bet on any approved professional sport, but with regard to college sports, you can't bet on Jersey-based teams or on games taking place in New Jersey. So you can't bet on Rutgers games, whether home or away, if you're located in Jersey. And if a March Madness regional was being played in New Jersey, you wouldn't be able to bet on it. But that appears on track to change soon, at least for tournaments or postseason competitions. A resolution passed through an assembly committee by a unanimous vote on Wednesday, and voters in November might end up deciding its fate. The interesting thing to explore here is the national implications. Various other states have followed New Jersey's lead and either not allowed in-state college betting or, in the case of states that haven't legalized yet, they're considering an in-state college betting ban. So if New Jersey changes its policy, it'll be interesting to see whether other states again follow that lead and this odd rule goes extinct. What do you think, John? Will there be a domino effect? Well, you know, I think I'm placing my bet on inertia, at least initially. Um, Mm. Maybe more importantly, if a bookmaker could list a bet on a college game involving a team in New Hampshire or in Delaware, would it make a sound? Meaning, would anyone bet it? I doubt it. Rhode Island, okay, a few Division I basketball programs, and there is the University of Arkansas, too. But the big fish for sure here is Illinois, which has its own kind of weird rules and regulations. So uh, I think the biggest significance in New Jersey backpedaling, and I do expect that to happen next year on this, uh, is that no new big state is going to ban action on its own college games. I'm talking Florida, Texas, California, and so on. Um, It's going to seem a little bit too weird. And I think I think that might have not happened anyway. But now with New Jersey getting out of this uh, oddity, I think Mm -hmm. it's going to be kind of going the way of the dodo. Yeah, I mean, as you said, New Jersey is not a state where this rule is of great importance. It's not a state known for its collegiate athletic excellence. But uh, yeah, the Illinois, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, Ohio, Michigan, there, there are other states where if you ban betting on the local college team, you are taking a huge chunk out of the betting handle. Um, I think it's a fairly ridiculous rule in the first place. You're just driving betting on those games offshore or to bookies or to other states, but the betting will occur if someone wants to bribe a college athlete legalizing the betting won't change that other than making it easier to spot. Uh, If a strange betting trend develops, you can actually catch it by making it legal, but you know, this was the concession New Jersey made to ease the worries of some interested parties It's good to see we're apparently moving past that, and uh, I would imagine it will indeed be a thing of the past in other states before too long. I do wonder if any other states will ever do what Pennsylvania does, which is not allow player props on college games. I haven't seen anyone else borrowing that idea, and I'm not saying it's a good idea. I just think it's not any less logical than banning in-state college betting altogether, but I haven't seen it replicated anywhere. I, I want to say Iowa does that too, but I'm not ah, sure. Okay. Maybe, Maybe one of the, one of the I states, I think, but uh, okay. I think, I think that one is actually much more defensible. Um, even, even if it's just uh, uh, on a surface thing, oh, it seems like that would be, maybe it's not really 
realistically uh, an issue, but mm-hmm. I, I can see that one. That that's not as uh, sort of blatantly silly as the as the betting on betting the game at all. Right. Okay. Um, and as long as we're talking about New Jersey, uh, a very quick news item to mention: Borgata suddenly dropped its lawsuit against Ocean Casino for poaching key marketing executives after several months of back and forth. Uh, quick take, John. A- any guess what changed and why Borgata gave up? Well, I mentioned in a tweet this week that Borgata's legal team had such a great run and it appears to have finally ended. They had their epic $10 million battle versus poker legend Phil Ivey over possibly ill-gotten Baccarat winnings from that lasted from 2014 until last August when there was undisclosed, undisclosed settlement. And the next day, the, this doozy of alleged uh, executive poaching uh, uh, with all sorts of trade secrets, espionage, and cell phone shenanigans lawsuit was filed. Um, now, unlike the lawyers, I didn't make any money on any of this, but uh, <laughs> although if I was paid by the click of consumers reading IV or poaching stories, I'd have done quite well. Right. Still, I'm a little bit sad today. And I suppose it looks as if Borgata gave up, but my speculation is that Ocean did. Uh, they mm. kept trying to knock this thing out of court and failing. They just failed again less than two weeks earlier. And one of the key poached executives has had to wait almost a year before she can join the Ocean team. Uh, it doesn't seem like any employees are repatriating the Borgata that I can see, but maybe each casino ownership group kind of sufficiently rattled their sabers. And so here we are. Mm. Yeah, I feel bad for you. You're on a tough run lately. Your New Jersey case is settling. It's a bit of an anticlimax, and I know you were enjoying this one. I uh, thought you may be able to squeeze a couple of years of updates and analysis out of it. But it's still worth referencing uh, every month when we see whether Ocean is closer to passing Borgata as Atlantic City's top casino. You'll be able to pull up this case and mention uh, this moment where Ocean uh, boldly tried to make its move. Well, we're, we're, we're a litigious lot here in New Jersey. I, there'll be another good one coming along soon enough. Uh, probably. <laughs> it's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. As John and I just finished discussing during the news segment, our parent company, Better Collective, completed a massive purchase this week of the Action Network. So our circle just got a fair bit wider, and we are excited to welcome into that circle and onto our podcast, the chief content officer at the Action Network, the host of the Favorites podcast, the former editor-in-chief of ESPN, the magazine, and ESPN.com, and most importantly, Gary Delabate's ghostwriter, Chad Millman. Chad, welcome to Gamble On, and welcome to Better Collective. Thank you, uh, Eric. It's thrilling to be a part of the team. We're just uh, unbelievably excited to join Better Collective and work with everyone in the group there. Uh, yeah, it's been an exciting week, almost as exciting as when I did sign the deal to write Gary Delabate's book. Not quite. <laughs> but almost as exciting. A strong number two. Okay. So, so first things first, what are you spending your $240 million on? You know, it's a really good question. My wife and I have been talking a lot about it and um, (laughs) we can't really decide right now. I will tell you that on the night when the news became public, obviously this had been going on for a while. It's not like it happened sort of overnight. And so we knew this was happening. And even over the weekend before the announcement on Monday, it, it's becoming a reality, right? And, and you know that the signing is imminent and that this is going to happen and you're feeling all different kinds of emotions. You're relieved, you're thrilled, you're excited. For me personally, I had left ESPN, a very nice life and a very comfortable job in September of 2017 and uh, you know, was on the streets of New York 
trying to find office space for, I didn't even know how big my team was going to be for action, you know, two days after I left ESPN. So you, you spend a lot of time thinking about how are you positioning yourself? What is the landscape? Where's the competition? What can you be doing? Who are potential acquirers? You're as a venture backed business, you're always thinking um, about exit. Uh, or worrying about going under. And so uh, that night that we finally sold, I went downstairs and we were, my wife brought in dinner. You know, it's, it's a weird thing. You can't go to celebrate with your colleagues and your friends that you've been building this thing with because uh, of the pandemic. So we ordered in dinner and uh, my wife was like, okay, we're celebrating, you know, the sale of the company. And she goes, but for the record, I used gift cards to, to buy this dinner. <laughs> Right. So, so truly nothing, nothing has changed yet. And, and of course I was, you know, joking the $240 million isn't, isn't all yours. Um, But, but most of it, right. Most of it. Right. So, (laughs) which you, of course, only your most of it, then you split that half of that's you, half of that's your wife. Exactly. Uh, But, but in all seriousness, this is a major deal and a tremendous accomplishment for the team at the action network. And after taking that risk that you talked about leaving ESPN to go the startup route, I'm curious how, how close have the last four years or so been to what you were envisioning? Has Action Network gotten to this point faster than you expected? Or is this kind of what you were foreseeing when you started? It was naively exactly what we foresaw when we started it. Um, you know, the churning group, uh, which started the business and uh, did the investment in the business and recruited me from ESPN. During the process, this was you know, three and a half years ago, um, during that process, we always talked, if we do this right, if sports betting becomes legal, if we create the right kind of content, if we build the right product, if we can, you know, make good decisions more often than we make bad decisions, you never know. It could be a $300 million business in, in terms of valuation in the next three to four years. Um, I actually remember when I had decided to leave ESPN, I was sitting uh, with John Skipper, who at the time was the president of ESPN in his office. And uh, we were just sort of having one final conversation about, you know, what would staying look like? And he said, what you're going to could be a one, it could be a 10. Like, you don't know. It could be in the next few years, gambling go crazy. Someone buys you for 250 or $300 million. And so, um, you know, that was always sort of the hope. And looking back, it was so stupid to even think like that. Like You just, <laughs> it's so hard. You don't know. There's so many times where the business struggles and uh, you don't know what the outlet, uh, what, the, what the exit is going to look like. And so, you know, there's a lot of luck involved. But Sk- Skipper actually threw that number out there. He was that yeah. close to uh, to what the figure ended up being. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> All right. I'll give you a sh- uh, the all-time shameless name drop. I'm just going to admit it right now. Okay. But it's relevant, so you- you'll have to bear with me. Uh, so Donald Trump once told me, seriously, that the two jobs that if you get, you never, ever leave. One is NFL team owner. The other is U.S. senator. Now, I think editor-in-chief of ESPN, the magazine, isn't quite on that level, but it's way, way up there. So I'm wondering, first of all, how difficult was that to get to that final conversation? And then mentioning 2017, I think you said you, you, you officially left in September. So, uh, you know, the backstory probably that a lot of people don't understand that weren't involved in it. But so I imagine that the Supreme Court 
agreeing to take the case of the New Jersey sports betting case in, I think it was June of 2017, that gave you a pretty good hint as to where things were going. Uh, but even so, what, was it still that difficult to leave ESPN? So, uh, Look, editor in chief of the of the magazine is a dream job, uh, and I I got that in 2011. At the time, I was living, John, you can appreciate this. I was living in Montclair, New Jersey. Yeah. Um, my wife and I, with our two kids, very happy. I had been an editor at the magazine. I had been writing books, and in my life, I kind of just wanted to, you know, have a day job as an editor at the magazine, and I wanted to keep writing books. Uh, one of the books was about guys who bet on sports for a living, which got me into the betting space and helped me make a lot of contacts, meet a lot of people. Um, and so then I started doing that pretty aggressively for ESPN, doing it for television and podcasting and writing while I was also editing the magazine. And then uh, the magazine moved when I became editor-in-chief to Bristol. Uh, and so we moved to central Connecticut. And so I was editor-in-chief from 2011 to 2016. And then, uh, you know, I firmly believe that an editor-in-chief job has a life cycle of three to five years. Um, I'm not a believer like Anna Wintour or Graydon Carter or sort of people from old <laughs> magazine, you know, of the past. Like you do that job for 30 years. I just, I think people start to, to not listen to you anymore. And I think you start to lose interest. So uh, in 2016, I became editorial director for ESPN Digital and I dropped the magazine job. And um, when, when I was approached by the churning group, that spring and um, very interested in gambling, was thinking about wanting to do what I wanted to do with ESPN, how I wanted to grow, what, uh, what other things were out there within the ESPN ecosystem. And gambling, obviously, because of my bent and what I had started. And at that point, I had hired a bunch of people and we had started Chalk. Uh, I felt like we needed to get bigger, faster in the gambling space, that this was coming down the pike sooner than anybody realized. Uh, just by virtue of reading what you were doing, John, and having other contacts in the, in the industry and understanding sort of what the movement was happening uh, and knowing that the case was going to be considered to be heard. So that was in, in May, the churning group and Mike Kearns of the churning group called me. I think it was that June. I was in New York. I was at the Time Warner Center. I got an alert that the Supreme Court had decided to hear the case. And I texted Kearns and I said, this just got a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. And like you, John, I sort of felt if the Supreme Court was going to hear the case, right. one of three things could happen. One, they could decide New Jersey gets to get legalized sports betting and it would open the pathway for every other state that wanted it to understand how they could get it, what case they could devise, what the language needed to be for them to get sports betting. I thought, two they overturned PASPA entirely and every state can have it. I thought, which I thought was the longest of the long shots. I thought three, they reject the case. Nothing changes. It is as it is. Uh, I am a, you know, clearly a calculating betting man. And I figure 66% chance the Supreme court is going to do something to make sports betting legal. Uh, and that accelerated the conversations with uh, the churning guys to launch action. All right, so so shifting to a, a little a little sports talk here. Uh, people who are only listening to the audio can't uh, see what we're seeing behind you. Uh, 
big uh, Bears banner logo. You're a lifelong Bears fan. Um, I'm an Eagles fan, so uh, sorry about the double doink uh, and about yeah, right. your Nick Foles experience. Beginning um, of the end for the Bears the past five years. Yeah, but I, I'm curious. Uh, you know, things are looking up. I'm curious for your thoughts on on Justin Fields. Uh, he's the second favorite for Offensive Rookie of the Year. I'm seeing him between plus 400 and plus 600. Do you see any value there, or would you need a, a higher number to put money on him for that award? I, I feel like the value has been bet out. You mentioned the favorites podcast that I host. I discussed this yesterday with my co-host, Simon Hunter, also an Eagles fan. Right. And we were talking about Justin Fields um, because I'm so excited about it. I feel like the Bears generally find ways to put obstacles in their way and not make good decisions, no matter what the case. And this year, they actually made the right choice. They traded up. They got a quarterback who has consistently proven it. I'm a believer as a sports fan and whatever expertise I have, having been in the media space for 20 something years, that quarterbacks who play at elite schools over a long period of time and show elite skills consistently over many years. uh, Those are guys that you want to build around and draft Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields. Those are the two guys who did it in this year's draft. So, and they have been the number one and two quarterbacks in their age range for as long as we can remember. So I love what the bears did. Uh, Despite Simon Hunter, my co-host pointing out that uh, Ohio state has never produced a good quarterback and the bears have no history of developing good quarterbacks. Uh, That said, I think the odds are too short at this point. And so if I did it, it would only be because I'm a Homer, not because I'm a a skilled, thoughtful uh, uh, value seeking better. Okay, well, we're we're all homers a a little bit, I suppose, uh, even at the betting window. Um, and for what it's worth, you did get a much better and more successful version of Jim McMahon than we did in in Philly. Um, That's true. Uh, but one one other question about uh, specifically pertaining to quarterbacks uh, in that division. You've spent a, a lot of years uh, with Aaron Rodgers to worry about in your division. Do you think he'll still be uh, in the NFC North in September or? Should I maybe be feeling good about my 80 to one Super Bowl bet on the Broncos that I made in February? I think you should feel fantastic about that bet. I, this thing feels, and you never know, but it just feels ugly. As we are recording, there is a report um, that Aaron Rodgers refers to uh, the Packers GM as Jerry Krause. Right. in text chains with his teammates. And, and you know, for frame of reference, for anyone who isn't familiar with the Bulls of the 90s or had wa- hadn't watched Last Dance on ESPN last year, Jerry Krause was the GM of the Bulls that Michael Jordan had so much disdain for. Um, and that is how Aaron Rodgers is feeling about his current GM. He doesn't have much leverage. You know, he's in, under contract and he's got a big number. So it's really going to be up to the Packers and how much they feel like working with a guy who is uh, who is so incredibly angry. Yeah, so you're not buying the Jeopardy gig, I can tell. All right. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was out there. But I want to ask you, because we do this with a lot of uh, uh, sports betting industry executives, because we get a wide range of answers, as it turns out, um, about your own kind of gambling inclinations. Uh, do you have a favorite sport to bet on? And, and also, if I'm in a casino looking around for you, you know, what, what section of the casino should I look first to have a best shot of finding it? You know what's interesting? And I've said this for years on my podcast, and I've never tried to hide it. Um, I got into sports betting and fell in love with it because of the characters, because of the betters, because of the bookmakers, because of the relationship between the two. 
uh, the book that I wrote about sports betting 20 something years ago called The Odds. I had spent six months in Vegas tracking the betters and tracking the bookmakers and understanding that relationship and how um, what they were doing, the, the small sort of combat between a bookmaker setting a line, a better betting into the line, how it moves, that had a massive, those small things had massive impact on sports fandom for hundreds of millions of people and impacting billions and billions of dollars. And it was a shadow world that a lot of sports fans didn't know about. That's what interested me. Along the way, I started to learn a lot about the math and the calculus and the psychology and how to read the markets. Those are the things that are most interesting to me about betting. And I think it's why um, there was uh, an opportunity for me when I was at ESPN to create a beat and create content that wasn't just about picks, but was covering it in a way that I described when I wrote the memo to launch sports betting coverage ESPN, no different than the way Adam Schefter covers the NFL. And that's what got me into it, John. I, I will never claim to be a big better. I am not a big better. I can tell you that uh, me and the CEO at Action are the two oldest people at the company. And uh, I would venture to say that as far as salary, um, we are amongst the highest paid people at the company. And we will joke that we made $38 over the NFL weekend when there are people on our team that are betting, you know, many, many more dollars than that because they are much more aggressive, thoughtful, savvy betters. You're definitely taking higher risks than I am. So I'm, uh, I'm in awe of your number. I, I've never I put as much as $38 on the line. You know what? I will tell you, like, it's interesting because my inclination for taking risks is uh, A, over something that is longer term that I feel like I have more control over. So I would happily leave uh, a, an executive job at ESPN if I felt like uh, it was becoming difficult to do the things that I love to do, if I felt like I wasn't in control of my sort of career, if I felt like it was a, a an entity that was challenged and chuck it all to try a startup before I would bet a hundred dollars on, you know, the, on who's going to win the final four. It's just, it's not in my nature. Yeah. So lastly on the casino, slot machines, roulette, blackjack, uh, uh, blackjack. it would be blackjack. Hundred percent blackjack, and I would be terrible at it. <laughs> you can only be so bad at blackjack, yeah, just true. like you can only be so good at blackjack. I would hit every. I would hit at the wrong time every time. I would split at the wrong time every time. You name it. On my bachelor party, I went to Vegas with a bunch of friends. They were all playing craps. I didn't really know how to play. I was trying to just follow every single thing that a buddy of mine did. And of course, like the one time I turned around was the one time I missed the bet that he made that ended up winning him a lot of money. When I was at ESPN, I did a story for the magazine about Phil Ivey, who is, you know, one of the best poker players in the world and also plays for incredibly high stakes. And we were at a casino in Montreal doing this round the world sort of gambling tour that he was doing. And uh, it was a private room. It was me. It was a camera crew for E60. It was a uh, private craps table with his name embossed in gold on the side. Uh, he had pulled out a million dollars. He had his own croupier. He asked me if I wanted to roll. I filled the entire table. Like I didn't, I didn't crap out, um, but I didn't win him anything during an entire series of rolls. So at this point, there's 750 grand on the table. 
I can only at this point win him a buttload of money or lose him a ridiculous amount of money. Of course, I crapped out. So um, I lost Phil Ivey $750,000. He looked at me and he goes, you're mush. Which is like <laughs> one of the, it was one of the most deflating moments of my life. Well, uh, it, it would appear the evidence so far suggests that you, you are not a mush as far as the, the action network goes. So uh, and you, you certainly not crapped out quite the opposite. So uh, congratulations again on all your success uh, with this project and hopefully much more success still to come. And, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, fellas. I, I look forward to working together. All right. Thanks, Chad. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. John said last week that true mediocrity after 140 episodes of bankroll betting would be if we were down $500. And I am pleased to report that we had some positive results last week that inched us closer to that true mediocrity. Uh, We do have some NBA and NHL season-long bets wrapping up, but we won't grade those until the regular season is over, since that appears to be how sportsbooks are handling it during these COVID-threatened times. But we do have two events graded, last week's Valspar Championship Golf Tournament and the NFL Draft. And we came out ahead on both. Uh, with the golf, John had three losing bets, uh, $10 a piece on Charles Schwartzel and Justin Rose to win outright, and $40 on Brandon Grace for the top 40. But he had two winning bets, Schwartzel top 40, turning $40 into $105, and Louis Oosthuizen top 20, turning $100 into $220. All told, we won $125 there. And on the draft, we lost $50 on John's bet for Penne Sewell to go in the top five and another $10 on my bet on the Eagles to take Caleb Farley. But Najee Harris under 28.5 won us $100. So we profited $40 on the draft overall. Add it up and we won $165 last week. We're now down $722. We also have $2,355 on hold and futures bets. So that leaves us with $6,923 available to bet with this week. And I'm up first. And boxing's biggest star, Canelo Alvarez, is in action this Saturday. He's gone from a good fighter with a ton of hype five to ten years ago to a legitimately dominant force now. The last couple of years, he's been making it look easy, even against good fighters. And his opponent Saturday, Billy Joe Saunders of the UK, is a good fighter. The sports books have him around a four-to-one or five-to-one dog. I don't like him one bit at that price. I don't see Saunders having more than a 10% chance at upsetting Canelo. But I don't love betting minus 550 or higher on Canelo to win. You're just risking too much to win too little. So I have to make the tough call. Will it be KO or decision? And there was some interesting back and forth this week with Saunders, who's a slickster and a mover, wanting the big 22-foot by 22-foot ring. And apparently he's getting it. That means more room to run while Canelo pursues him. Uh, So I think a 12-round distance fight is slightly more likely than a KO. And the books have Canelo by KO as the shorter money, somewhat to my surprise. So I think I see a little value here. Canelo by decision is plus 150 at Fox Bet. Let's take a little shot there and bet $50 to win 75. I'm not as confident as I sometimes am with my boxing bets. So I'm keeping it a little smaller but still a nice $75 return if we win. 
All right. And uh, yeah, I, I liked my golf picks last week. Uh, Ustazen wasn't just top 20. He was top 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, Schwartzel wasn't just top 40. He was top 20 until his final hole. He finished T21 first. Thank goodness we didn't take T20. <laughs> uh, Brandon Grace, top 40, was golden into the back nine on Saturday. He went five over par in a span of four holes mm-hmm. and finished two shots out of our money. So we could absorb three hiccups, but not five in a span of four holes. So uh, now sticking to the afternoon card as they do on East Coast events. Uh, this week, I've got the Wells Fargo in North Carolina. I again saw four, four golfers in the late uh, session that I liked, but this time only three had prices that appealed to me. Okay. Um, and yes, I checked my doctor and he says Al Torres is right for me <laughs> at 10 to win at plus 2,600. So we are this close to that goal of mediocrity, Eric. We just need Will Zalatoris. Okay. Um, now, the value with South American uh, phenom Joaquin Neiman that I see here is top 10 at plus 300. We'll go 40 for that. Uh, get used to that name as well as newlywed Zalatoris, Will, that is. Yeah. Uh, and now a name that more fans know, certainly, is reigning British Open champion, fellow Irishman Shane Lowry, who is playing playing well and just below the radar. And that's how we can go 50 on Shane at plus 138. And all he needs for that is a top 30 finish to cash for us. Okay, I like it. Spreading it around again a little bit there. Um, For my second bet this week, I'm going to the NBA, where I've been very closely tracking the race for the Eastern Conference's play-in games. Uh, We have our bankroll bet on the Wizards to make the playoffs, which they're now almost certain to finish top 10 and get into the play-in and very much in range to move up to nine or maybe, just maybe, climb to eight, which would be huge for us. Um, I also made a real-life bet about a month ago on the Indiana Pacers at plus 280 not to make the playoffs. They're currently a half game ahead of Washington as the nine seed, which is great for me. As long as they don't climb into the top eight, I'm a big favorite heading into the play-ins. So the point is, I've been watching these teams closely. I've watched as the Bulls have completely fallen apart, slipping from a top 10 team to now three and a half games behind the Wizards. Their season is basically over. And I've watched the Charlotte Hornets hang on, keep playing reasonably well, survive a long stretch without LaMelo Ball. Now they have Ball back. They're the eighth seed right now. Every game is crucial as they try not to fall to ninth. And so I cannot for the life of me figure out why the Bulls are favored in Charlotte tonight. I'm finding the Hornets as high as plus 134 on the money line for a home game against a team that is toast. Uh, Yes, the Hornets are without Miles Bridges, but the Bulls are without Zach Levine. And since acquiring Nikola Vucevic in late March, supposedly to help them climb to a top six seed, They've gone seven and 15. It just isn't working. And you're giving me Charlotte as an underdog at home against them. I'll take it all day. Let's bet a hundred dollars to win 134 on the Hornets tonight. All right. And uh, I'm going to think I'm going to start experimenting with baseball betting, although okay. I've got a, a, a lot to learn. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, I'm going to try uh, Andrew Haney Thursday night of the angels. He's a left-handed pitcher. Tampa Bay strikes out a ton against lefties. Uh, Haney should have a lot of strikeouts in this game. And the other challenge is uh, I'm going to take the run line. So I'm going to give a one and a half runs, uh, but only bet 50 at plus 155. Um, it's a real challenge in baseball. Look at uh, the money line of just basically of uh, or win line, uh, who's going to win. And then you can give one and a half runs. And of course, it sounds like a parlay thing where every time you give one and a half, your team wins 
by one. So right. We'll again. <laughs> All right. So we need the angels to win by two or more is what we're yes. rooting for. Okay. All right. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest and our new best friend, Chad Millman. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, some of you out there are already have been vaccinated, or at least you're in some stage of the process. And maybe you're realizing that it could be feasible this summer or this fall. Check an item off the old uh, personal bucket list. But maybe you're fairly young and or fairly healthy. And well, maybe just wait till next year, as the old phrase used to be uttered for my father's Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, this all goes back for me to Steve Califer. Uh, he became probably the biggest automobile dealer in New Jersey, amassed hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate and automobile dealings, uh, gave much of it away in his philanthropy. He was a founding owner of the Somerset Patriots minor league baseball team. And as I got to know him almost 20 years ago, he tried to add another team at the Meadowlands Sports Complex. And being the ultimate Jersey guy, Steve had another passion too, why not? Producing documentary films, three of which earned Oscar nominations. Um, none of those for, were for 2010's The Soprano State, New Jersey's Culture of Corruption, Part 1, uh, which erased something from my own bucket list, appearing in a movie that, well, at least a few people paid to watch with their hard-earned money. Uh, I called Steve only maybe five or six weeks ago to catch up and also congratulate him on a remarkable off-season development. After a couple of decades as a member of independent leagues, his Patriots had gotten the call, as they say, to the show. They would become the New York Yankees double-A affiliate beginning this season. Mm-hmm. Steve was thrilled, of course, and he gave me some of the background on how it all came to be. Uh, the Patriots' debut as the Yankees affiliate just began on uh, Tuesday, in fact. But sadly, Steve passed away just two weeks earlier at the age of 71. You know, while he had gamely battled cancer for several years and never seemed to slow down, you know, the sweet satisfaction of seeing that opening day pitch, it, it just was not to be. And, you know, at first, as I thought about all this, my sense was this as a cautionary tale. Let's see, next year isn't guaranteed for anybody, you know, carpe diem and all that. But then I realized, hell, this, this had to be Steve's fifth or sixth bucketful list, at least, as a husband, father, and grandfather to boot, I should add. So that's what I wind up focusing on more when I think of Steve. Just keep on filling as many buckets as you can, as long as life lets you. And with that, until next time, everybody, gamble on. <laughs>